The National Archives podcast series, The Hong Kong Colonial Cemetery, presented by Christine Thomas. This event was recorded live on the 8th of September 2011 at the National Archives queue. Thank you for coming along this afternoon to join me on a short walk through the Hong Kong Cemetery. What pictures spring into your mind when you hear the words Hong Kong? For some, I expect it will be the dark night sky being lit up with neon signs and laser beams. For others, it could well be the sight of skyscrapers rising majestically from construction sites. And these are definitely pictures from the 21st century Hong Kong. But the old Hong Kong is still there for anyone who wants to find it. There's narrow side streets packed full of stores selling everything under the sun. And if you glance up, you're bound to catch a glimpse of some washing hanging out to dry high above the street. At Chinese New Year, there are wonderful, vibrant decorations. And if you're lucky, you might even catch a glimpse of some Chinese street opera. But the largest area of old Hong Kong, at least on the island, can be found in Happy Valley, where nestling at the foot of tower blocks and busy flyovers can be found the former colonial cemetery. And this dates back to 1845. And like all cemeteries, it's packed full of history. It wasn't always so busy and crowded here. In the early 1900s, the graves on their terrace site looked out over the race course to the rolling hills beyond. It wasn't until the 1950s that the buildings began to rise, but perhaps the worst time of all for the cemetery was in the 1970s when it was decided to construct the Aberdeen Tunnel through the hills from Happy Valley to the south side of the island. On this early chart of the central sections of the cemetery, I've slashed some red lines across the bottom. And this is the area on the lower sections that was decimated in order for the approach roads to the tunnel to be built. You can see that that those lower sections, there there would be hardly anything left of them. On a later chart of the cemetery, now this is from the 1980s, and it clearly shows the tunnel slicing through the terraces on the hillside. Over 3,000 graves had to be exhumed. Graves with headstones were all moved elsewhere within the cemetery, whilst remains from gravestones that, or graves that had no headstones, were to be placed in a brand new ossuary with a named plaque for each little niche. It was shortly after this work had been completed in the 80s that I discovered the cemetery. And although I didn't know it then, so began a lifetime's work for me, recording not only the inscriptions from the stones, but also the burial details from as many sources as I could find. Years later, as I collated the information on a computer in a database, I found I was able to track the movements of graves and found that some poor souls, quite a few in actual fact, several hundred, 
had ended up in three different places in the cemetery before hopefully finding their eventual resting place. And in recent years, I've been discovering the stories behind some of the stones. The first grave that we're going to be visiting today was one of those affected by the work in the 1970s. It could originally be found right down in the bottom. If you see a little blue star there, right on the bottom of the picture, that is where it originally was in section 10. But it can now be found way up on the hillside in section 16C. Although the land looks all nice and flat on a chart, it's worth remembering if you ever visit there that the cemetery can be found on the side of the hill. So to climb from from the lower entrance in Happy Valley right up to the top tiers takes a hell of a lot of effort. So as I know we're going to be visiting one of those top sections, I'm going to save us a lot of energy and enter by this little gate way up on the hill in Stubbs Road. So now we can just meander our way down instead of puffing our way up. Within section 16C, we find the graves of those who were originally buried here in the 1920s, and interspersed with those are a lot of very, very old graves, and those are the ones that were moved in the 1970s. This is the stone I'm looking for, and although it's very faded and weather-worn, the inscription can still just about be traced with a finger. And it reads, In memory of William Barnicott, who died at Hong Kong on the 27th of February, 1870, aged 34 years. So who was William? Surely he must have been a man of some importance to have had a headstone, let alone a headstone that survived all these years. But no, William was just a clerk employed by the colonial government. He had been born in Westminster in 1835, the son of a carpenter from Cornwall. At the age of 20, he enlisted with the Medical Staff Corps, and over the next few years he saw service in both the Indian Mutiny and the China Wars. After seven years' service, he found himself posted to Hong Kong as clerk to the principal medical officer. And he must have decided that this was an up-and-coming place to be, so he arranged for his discharge. With his administrative and military background, there would have been no shortage of jobs for him within the mercantile community, because this was a thriving trading port. Next, he found himself a wife, and a year later they had a son whom they named Arthur William. Both the wedding and the baptism took place in St John's. In 1865, he obtained appointment as second clerk with the colonial administration, and a year later was transferred to the colonial secretary's office. The National Archives is an absolute treasure trove of information for both major and very minor staff employed by colonial administrations. And although I'm concentrating on the former Crown Colony of Hong Kong, the same principles apply to each and every one of our former colonies. The first place to start a search is what is is known as the Blue Books, which contain list upon list of employees under various departments. The Hong Kong Blue Books are held in the CO133 series. 
Here we have William's entry from 1865, showing him working in the Registrar General's department and receiving a salary of £250 per annum. His date of first appointment is given as the 1st of October 65. An entry from 1868 shows William after his transfer to the Colonial Secretary's office. And interestingly, we see that the authority for this appointment was no less than the governor. Sir Richard Graves MacDonnell had taken over as the sixth governor of Hong Kong in October 1865 and he was absolutely appalled to find that the colonial secretary's office was mismanaged with insufficient indexes and that the documents were confused with ill-devised means of sorting the archives. He set about putting the matter right and from the look of things recognised that William, with his previous experience with the military, was obviously the man to work with systems. By 1869, the governor was reporting that the office was working well and the staff were competent and willing. A Hong Kong guidebook from the era shows that the government offices were close to St John's it was a building of two stories, and the governor and colonial secretary and their staff had offices on the upper floor. So William was working right next door to where he'd married and where his son had been baptised. But what was happening in his personal life? Well, in the summer of 1866, his wife had returned to England, taking young Arthur, who was 18 months old, with her. It's likely that either Mrs. Barnica or the child had difficulty with the tropical climate, or it could just have been that a break back home was required. Whatever the reason, Mrs. Barnicott set sail on the P&O ship Rangoon on the 14th of May, 1866. Now, this was in the days before the Suez Canal, so the journey wasn't that straightforward. Passengers and mail would first travel from Hong Kong to Calcutta. In Calcutta, they'd change ships and sail on to the town of Suez via Aden. From Suez, they'd have to take a train right up to Alexandria and then board another ship for the homeward leg to the UK. The whole trip took something like six to eight weeks, depending on the time of year and the weather conditions. Mrs. Barnicott's journey was no different, and in Calcutta, she and her baby transferred to the P&O ship Nemesis. And this wonderful picture of the ship at birth at Garden Reach in Calcutta is shown courtesy of the P&O Heritage Collection. On this next leg of the journey, Mrs. Barnicott became ill, and shortly before the Nemesis, Dr. Aden, she died. Fortunately, at least in terms of research, at Steamer Point in Aden, there was a British cemetery. And this came under the Archdeaconry of Bombay, and its records can now be found amongst the India office records at the British Library. This entry shows that Mrs. Barnicott, wife of Mr. W. Barnicott, clerk of Hong Kong, died of chronic diarrhoea on the 16th of June, on board the Nemesis and was buried at the Point Burial Ground the following day. Poor little Arthur, he was now an orphan. 
he would probably have been taken care of by one of the other ladies on the ship and it's likely that his mother left instructions for him to be handed over to a member of her own family in London. In 1871, he can be found on the census with the Stark family in Finsbury. And this is where we come to yet another wonderful source of information here at TNA, original correspondence with the Colonial Office. All the letters that were written from Hong Kong back to London all the letters coming into the colonial office from other government departments relating to Hong Kong. Letters written by members of the public to the colonial office regarding Hong Kong. Much of this has survived. And in the case of Hong Kong, thank goodness, because nearly everything at the Hong Kong end was destroyed during the Second World War. And this correspondence can be found in the CO129 series. Researchers with endless patience can be rewarded with little golden nuggets of information which just seem to fall from thick, heavy, bulky tomes. In these volumes, some six years after his mother's death, we find a letter written by Arthur's uncle, Mr Stark. And in this, he records as much as he knows about the young orphan. The fact that Arthur's mother was his wife's sister how she'd married William in Hong Kong and Arthur had been born, how Mrs Barnicott had died on the voyage back from Hong Kong and how Mr Barnicott had remarried and then himself died. Unfortunately, Stark doesn't know enough about the lad to know that his name is actually Barnicott because throughout this letter he refers to him as Barnacle. It's up to the colonial office to point out this, this mistake once they start to make their own inquiries. The reason for the letter was that in 1870, William's dying wish was that his son should be placed in a public school. His uncle's idea of a public school was the British Orphans Asylum at Slough. But before they'd accept him, they needed paperwork relating to his birth, hence the reason for this letter. So from one very old, very indistinct gravestone emerges this story, which has taken us on a journey from Westminster to the Indian Mutiny and the China Wars, on to Hong Kong with its fledgling civil service, a journey back home with a death on board a P&O ship and a burial in Aden, and ending with a young boy whose uncle wants to find him a place in an orphan's asylum. But this is just one story of 12,000 within the cemetery. So without any more delay, let's make our way down from section 16C to section 6. And from here, we get a very good view of the massive monuments to the memory of those from HMS Calcutta and HMS Columbine who died during the China Wars. But I'm no military historian, and military monuments aren't on my story list for today. Here in Section 6, we come across a site that's becoming common in cemeteries all over the world these days. It's a stone adorned with an ugly public safety notice. 
This particular stone has fallen back a foot or so and it's now resting comfortably on the bank behind. Again, the inscription is very, very faint, but it reads, In loving memory of Herbert William Johnson, late Hong Kong police, born at Earlsfield, London, 17th of March, 1871, Died at Government Civil Hospital, 25th of June, 1896. This stone is erected by his late comrades of the Hong Kong police and friends in token of respect. As it turns out, this is a very good example of not taking everything from inscriptions at face value. Johnson had actually been born in... Brompton rather than Ellsfield, and this is confirmed by his birth certificate. But the family had moved to 84 Brocklebank Road in Ellsfield when he was just a lad. His father was employed collecting money for a brewery, and considering where they were living, that brewery was probably Young's of Wandsworth. This was the era of domestic service, and one of Johnson's first jobs was as a footman in the service of the Earl of Clonmel. In a later application form, he showed that he'd been working at the family seat at Bishop's Court in County Kildare, and this was a very grand and imposing property. However, the Earl also maintained a property in London at 3 St James's Place, and it's likely that this is where Johnson actually worked for most of the time, with perhaps the occasional jaunt across the Irish Sea to County Kildare. But Johnson didn't see himself cut out for life in domestic service, so at the age of 19, he applied to become a constable in the Metropolitan Police. He underwent his medical examination in October 1890 and having been certified fit for police duty was duly attested in December. He was allocated the warrant number of 76467 and posted to A Division in the centre of London. Although not all Metropolitan Police Service registers from the 19th century have survived, Many of those that have are held here at TNA. There are different types of records for different eras, but from the 1890s through to 1909, there is a very rich source known as Certificate of Service Records, and these are held in the MEPO 4 series. The first page of Johnson's certificate shows his date of joining, warrant number and various postings. The second page contains details of his last job and also of real interest a physical description. From this we know that he weighed in at 13 stone 2 pounds, was 6 foot 1 inches in height with dark hair, a dark complexion and dark eyes. Now we don't have a photo but That's a fairly good description. The certificate also shows that he only served for three years before resigning on the 16th of December 1893. Now, normally we'd we'd be asking ourselves, why did he resign? But, of course, we've been working backwards from a gravestone in Hong Kong 
which stated he'd been a member of the Hong Kong police. So if we turn our attention once again to that wonderful series of CO129 documents, original correspondence with the colonial office, we find the documents relating to the recruitment of seven constables from the Met. All seven signed agreements and had their passages booked by the Crown agents on the Bothwell Castle, leaving London on the 10th of January 1894. But these papers also show that at the last minute, a Constable Dimmond, who was on the list, was prevented from leaving because a young lady had brought out an affiliation order against him. She accused him of having seduced her and left her pregnant. But that's a whole different story. So let's get back to Constable Johnson. The Crown agents must have got a very cheap deal on the Castle Line steamship, the Bothwell Castle, because our six constables were the only passengers on board. The ship had apparently been laid up in London for two years undergoing repairs prior to this run eastwards. When they reached Singapore, the engine was feeling the strain and they were stuck there for 13 days whilst further repairs were undertaken. When they finally left for the last leg of the, joy, the, last leg of the voyage, they hit strong northeasterly headwinds which delayed them even further and they eventually reached Hong Kong in the middle of March, some three weeks late. This is the type of information which can be extracted from the newspapers, provided you're blessed with endless patience and the ability to sit for hours on end in front of a microfilm reader. In Hong Kong, photographs of the time show that Hong Kong police stations were typical colonial buildings with large, airy verandas, shuttered windows and rattan blinds. And if we take a closer look, we see European and Sikh police officers wanting to get into the photo. And I wonder whether one of them might be Johnson. The main police station in Central District was of similar design, but a lot more imposing, and its courtyard was used for drills, presentations and displays. Japanese hot water baths heated by a charcoal stove had recently been provided at this station. The men had been instructed to take a hot plunge when returning wet and cold off night duty, and it was hoped that this would prevent them from coming down with chills which would have left them exposed to all the other infections which abound in a tropical climate. So having got all the way out to Hong Kong, surely this is where Johnson would be content to stay. From all accounts, he was a very popular member of the force. But no. After just two years, he resigned from the Hong Kong police and headed off to Canton, where he found himself the position as manager of the Victoria Hotel. The hotel had originally been known as the Chemin Hotel, but it had recently been bought by a new owner and relaunched under the name of the Victoria. It was branded as the only hotel under European management in the whole of Canton. And it would be remembered that Johnson's father, 
worked in the brewery trade. And I often wonder whether it was the son's intention to import good old London ale for the hotel. If he had, I think it would certainly have made him very popular with the local expats on the China coast. Tragically, just six months after taking up his new appointment, Johnson caught typhoid fever. He died back in Hong Kong at the government civil hospital on the morning of Wednesday the 24th of June, 1896. Which brings us to yet another great source of information here at TNA, government gazettes. Those for Hong Kong are held in the CO132 series, and if we delve through the volume for 1897, we find the probate calendar, which gives brief details of those who died and left wills and those who died intestate. This list contains an entry for Herbert William Johnson and shows us where and when he died and the value of his estate. Now, at the start of this story, I said it was a good example of not taking everything you read on inscriptions at face value. We've already seen that he was born at Brompton rather than Ellsfield. His date of death is given as the 25th of June on the gravestone, whereas his newspaper obituary and calendar of intestate estates shows he died on the 24th. Finally, although it may look as if he's serving with the Hong Kong police, the word late actually means that he had formerly served with the police. My guess is that his former colleagues and friends arranged for the stone to be erected some months after the event, probably a year after the event, and they definitely wanted to show his previous police service, but they got a few of the other facts slightly wrong. But time marches on, and we must be on our way to our next stop, which fortunately is on the flat through the lower sections. And we're now going to pass the chapel, which is the oldest surviving colonial building in Hong Kong. It dates way back to 1845, and although it's been extended and re-roofed over the years, it's still essentially the same building. Those interested in architecture will find these wonderful, original, hand-drawn plans of the chapel, drawn up by Charles St. George Cleverley, the Surveyor-General, and they again are held here at TNA. Next we pass the once beautiful Victorian water fountain adorned with cherub. Now, sadly, the bowl is concreted in to prevent mosquitoes breeding. And here we've arrived at section 45, which lies right in the shadow of the flyover and where the constant hum of traffic drowns out the delicate sounds of nature. In this section, we find a couple of crosses within one enclosure. And they're to the memory of two nurses, Sister Frances and Sister Gertrude. By the 1890s, the colonial surgeon had spent years battling with officialdom, trying to get a building that was suitable to be called a hospital. When he had arrived way back in 1873, he found the so-called hospital was actually a very old private house which had been divided up to provide a few wards. 
the lavatories were described as being in veranda rooms and were of a very primitive and unwholesome condition. So I don't think we'll pursue that line of research. However, Whitehall wasn't about to sanction a lot of money for a new hospital. But fortunately, fate took a hand in matters and along came a violent typhoon which raised the building to the ground. Staff and patients had to spend a fearful night huddled together on the ground floor while the roof and verandas came tumbling in around them. The next building to be tried as a hospital was the Europe Hotel, which fortunately happened to be let, available to let. This was in Old Bailey Street in front of the Central Police Station, and it was actually found to be a very great improvement. But it still wasn't perfect, so the correspondence with Whitehall continued and continued and continued. Fate came along again in 1878 in the form of the Great Fire, and this raised much of the city to the ground, the hospital included. This time, all the patients were moved to temporary accommodation in the Lock Hospital, whilst the argument continued. But this time, eventually, a solution was found by permanently extending the Lock Hospital, and then this became the permanent Hong Kong Government Civil Hospital. It is the building that you can see situated between the harbour and the recreation area in the front, the large building in the centre. So by the 1890s, everything was beginning to come together as far as hospital accommodation was concerned. The next question to be tackled was that of nursing staff. Five French Sisters of Mercy arrived, but they only stayed for a year. It was reported that being delicately nurtured women they found the work beyond their strength. Where else to turn to but to the London teaching hospitals? No delicately nurtured women there. So a matron and five trained nursing sisters were recruited. And after their first year, it was reported that they did the greatest credit to the hospitals from which they came. Before long, they were being accepted in the highest social circles in the colony and their recruitment was seen as being the most important improvement of all. New accommodation was built just to house the nursing staff and this was built on the hillside opposite the hospital. Two of the nurses from the original intake were Sister Frances, Elizabeth Frances Higgin, and Sister Gertrude, Emma Gertrude Island. After three years, both of them were allowed six weeks' leave. And yet another rich source of information are departmental annual reports, which were usually published within the government gazettes or can be found within sessional papers. Each year a report was published on the health of the colony and one of the annexes was from the superintendent of the civil hospital in which he listed any changes in staff. An extract from his 1893 report shows the leave dates of Miss Island and Miss Higgin. 1894 and 96 were horrible years because Hong Kong was visited by the plague. 
The nursing sisters insisted on serving in the plague hospital, even though under the terms of their agreement they weren't compelled to do so. At a later date, they were both awarded the Hong Kong Plague Medal. But the work took its toll on health, and Sister Gertrude took a year's leave from the spring of 95. Sister Frances was granted nine months' leave the following summer. So both nurses would have been in Hong Kong in June 1896, when our friend, the former police officer, Herbert Johnson, was admitted to the civil hospital. And I think there's little doubt that one, if not both of them, would have nursed him during those last days of his life. And so we come to 1898 and yet another outbreak of the plague. On the 20th of April, the ward boy of Sister Francis was down with the disease and in his delirium he accidentally spat on her. She washed herself immediately, but the damage had been done. On the 26th, she complained of having a slight fever. The next day, other symptoms appeared and she was transferred to the isolation ward. On the morning of the 28th, there was no doubt that she was suffering from the most lethal type of the disease and it was described as plague pneumonia. She passed away at 2.20am on the 29th of April with the matron, three sisters and a doctor in attendance. Sister Gertrude nursed her through those final days and those final hours and as a result she caught the plague herself. She died on the 5th of May, just seven days after her friend. It was reported that the loss to the hospital occasioned by the deaths of these two ladies was well nigh irreparable. The outpouring of grief within the colony as a whole was outstanding. Their headstones were paid for by a public subscription and there was enough left over for a stained glass window to be commissioned. And this memorial to the nurses was unveiled in St John's Cathedral a year after their deaths. Sadly, during the Second World War, the cathedral was used as a club by the Japanese and all the stained glass windows were stripped out. Fortunately, these two simple crosses standing proud in the cemetery survive as a testimony to their lives and work. Those wishing to explore further will find ample to keep them interested. Sister Gertrude had been employed at the London Hospital prior to her Hong Kong recruitment, and I understand that records in the Royal London Archives will reveal how she knew and nursed John Merrick, the elephant man. So you see, there's no end to the stories which can be revealed. But on to our last stop on today's very short walk through the Hong Kong Cemetery. We'll now make our way up to the ossuary, which was built in the 1970s. Up past sections containing military graves. And here, right next door to three very imposing naval monuments we find ourselves at the ossuary with its traditional green Chinese-style roof. Thousands of little niches, most with a name inscribed thereon, but some sadly just shown as unknown. Again, each and every one of these will have a story behind it, but which to choose? Well, as we're in the shadow of naval monuments, 
Let's have one connected with the sea. Joseph William Walker had been born in Cockermouth, Cumbria in 1905 and entered the merchant service at the age of 15. One of the ships he served on was Cunard's RMS Samaria. Her maiden voyage in 1922 was from Liverpool to Boston and later the route was extended to New York. The Samaria was then used for cruising with round-the-world voyages being added in 1923 and 1924. Walker gained his second mate certificate in 1927 and his first mate certificate in 1932. The following year, he joined the China Navigation Company in Hong Kong and by 1937 had his master's certificate. These merchant seamen's records can be found here at TNA in the BT349 to BT352 series. But there's an additional source for those who obtained their master's and mate certificates in the colonies because government gazettes also printed an annual list. Life was good in Hong Kong in the 1930s and jaunts could be made up the China coast to Canton, Shanghai and the Yangtze River. Here we have Walker and a friend messing about on the ice, much to the amazement of their rickshaw coolies, or perhaps it was the coolies who were egging them on. During the summer months back in Hong Kong, leisure time could be spent at the beach, perhaps at the world-famous Repulse Bay Hotel, or down at the beach, at the bathing huts. Now, these were built on stilts and they had rather exotic, tropical thatched roofs. Here we have a picture of Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill with a very pretty young lady and even the ship's cat climbing the rungs up the funnel. I'm referring to Joseph William Walker here as Uncle Bill because these wonderful photos are owned by Gerald Walker, one of the captain's nephews, and it's with very grateful thanks to him that I'm able to show them to you today. Towards the end of 1938, Captain Walker was due to return to England on leave to attend his brother's wedding. Unfortunately, in the autumn, he caught a fever, and he died at the Hong Kong War Memorial nursing home on the 18th of September 1938. He was buried in the colonial cemetery in grave number 9782 in section 16F the following day. As I mentioned earlier, in 1975 a large portion of the cemetery was requisitioned to enable work to proceed on the Aberdeen Tunnel. Section 16F, where Captain Walker was buried, was not under threat from the construction work. However, space was urgently needed in all the sections to make room for the graves with headstones that were being moved. Captain Walker's grave had no headstone, and so his remains were therefore exhumed on the 19th of July, 1976. And they were eventually placed in this newly constructed ossuary. One very 
positive result of the move is that his resting place is now marked with his name, making it relatively easy for relatives in the future to find. And so, as tower blocks continue to reach higher and higher into the sky and damaged headstones continue to be thrown out with the rubbish, we've come to the end of today's very short walk through the Hong Kong Cemetery. And I'd like to thank you very much for joining me and I hope you've enjoyed these few stories. podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.